don't know what to do. What do you mean? Like, what do we say? I don't know. Introduce yourself. You introduce yourself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Welcome to our podcast. True Crimes and Story Times. I'm Kirsten. I'm Michelle. And today I am, ha- I have been waiting to do this case for a long time. Mm. It's not really a case. It's more like a story, but it's true. It's kind of both. Yeah. There's um, a case inside the story. Yes, yes. Um, so my, one of my husband's favorite movies, Logan's, is The Irishman. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. Um, it's a super good movie. It's a true, true-ish story, mm-hmm. um, and it is about a man named Frank Fitzsimmons, and he works for works with a guy who's named Jimmy Hoffa. Okay. So in this in this case, we're going to talk about James or Jimmy Hoffa. Okay. So he was born in Brazil, Indiana, on February fourteenth, nineteen thirteen. Oh, Valentine's Day. Yeah. His parents were John and Viola Hoffa. His father died in 1920 from lung disease when Hoffa was seven years old. The family moved to Detroit in 1924, where Hoffa was raised and lived for the rest of his life. Okay. He left school at the age of 14 and began working full-time manual labor jobs to help support his family. Hoffa married Josephine Poziwak. Mm-hmm. On September 25th, 1937. That seems like so long ago, dude. That's almost... I know. We're coming up on 100 years ago. I know. Pretty close, anyways. About uh, four, 15 years off. Mm-hmm. Well, he was born in 1913. I know. My so grandma... That was over. that was over 100 years My great-great-grandma that passed away, mm-hmm. she was born in like 1912 or some, something, and she died when she was 97. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so Josephine was an 18-year-old laundry worker who lived in Bowling Green, Ohio. Interesting. The couple had only met six months prior to getting married, and they met during a non-union... Let me try that again. (laughs) Non-unionized laundry workers' strike action. So this is around the time where, like, people were realizing that they are not getting paid enough. They're mm-hmm. getting treated badly at their jobs. They, you know, are, and they're trying to make it better. Yeah. Stand against it. So, Hoffa and Josephine had two children, a daughter named Barbara and a son named James. They lived in a modest home in northwestern Detroit, but they also owned a summer lakefront cottage in Orion Township, Michigan. Hoffa began union organizational work as a teenager through his job with a grocery chain, which paid substandard wages and offered poor working conditions with minimal job security. So, again, not great. The workers were displeased with that situation and tried to organize a union to better their lot. Okay. So, I know you've heard, like, the union. You know what mm-hmm. the union is. Yeah, there's unions still. Yeah. 
for like a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. a bunch of different one of Austin's areas of closest work. friends works in the union yeah Although Hoffa was young, his courage and approachability in that role impressed fellow workers, and he rose to a leadership position. By 1932, Hoffa left the grocery chain partly because of his union activities. He was then invited to become an organizer with Local 299 of the Teamsters in Detroit. Okay. The Teamsters are America's largest and most diverse union. Interesting. In 1903, the Teamsters started as a merger of the two leading team driver associations. These drivers were the backbone of America's robust economic growth, but they needed to organize to wrest their fair share from greedy corporations. Okay. So they came together and made the Teamsters Union. That's pretty cool, actually. The Teamsters had 75,000 members in 1933. That's crazy. That's a lot, right? Um, Yeah, I'm kind of wondering, like, what does a normal union, like, what are their numbers look like? Nowadays, I don't know. But um, when when Hoffa started working for them Mm -hmm. um, and all the other union leaders that he worked for with... Um, the numbers started to grow, and by 1936, so just three years later, it went from 75,000 members to 170,000 members. Damn, that's crazy. And then three years after that, it grew to 420,000 members. Damn. And then by 1951, it was over a million members in 2021 the number of men who were union members at 7.5 million that's crazy the number of women who were union members declined by 182,000 to 6.5 million Hmm. so total that's like 14 million yeah 13 million something like that i can't math that quick me either but that's a big number you heard me typing in the background (laughs) she was looking it up yeah i needed to know So, the Teamsters organized truck drivers and warehouse workers throughout the Midwest and then branched out to Nationwide. Hoffa played a major role in the union's skillful use of quickie strikes, secondary boycotts, and other means of leveraging union strength at one company, then to move to organize workers, and finally to win contract demands in other companies. So, he was doing a lot. Yeah, it sounds like And the union work. And he, like, really took pride in it, too. Mm-hmm. That process, which took several, several years, starting in the early 1930s, eventually brought the Teamsters to a position of being one of the most powerful unions in the United States. Wow. Trucking unions in that year were heavily influenced by organized crime. Mm. So... If you have seen um, The Irishman, it talks about kind of like the mafia, I guess, mm-hmm. if you want to like use that term. It's kind of vague, but basically mafia work yeah. to like help them out in their union work as well. Right. Oh, also, I just want to make it clear that when I was talking about the union workers, that's in like total in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Not like for Teamsters. I don't know oh, if it yeah, still no. exists, but I just want to make it clear. Yeah, total. Because there's, yeah. like, more than one union. Mm-hmm. There's so many different ones. There's, yeah. like, 
different numbers and like letters and shit mm-hmm. i can't keep up. that's why like the the union area that he's over er, part of is 299 local 299 yeah. um so a lot of stuff that was going on in these unions was influenced by organized crime okay for hoffa to unify and expand trucking unions he had to make accommodations and arrangements with many gangsters beginning in the detroit area Organized crime influence on the IBT increased as the union itself grew. IBT is the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Okay. That's just, that's what they called. They were called. Um, Hoffa worked to defend the Teamsters from raids by other unions, including the Congress of Industrial Organizations, and he extended the Teamsters' influence in the Midwest from the late 1930s to the late 1940s okay so they're basically like fighting each other mm-hmm. like the different unions yeah and this was like one of the biggest okay and everybody wanted to like i don't know tear them down i guess so they had to stick up for themselves so that's what he was trying to do and they do that by organized crime right although he never actually worked as a truck driver he became president of Local 299 in December 1946. Interesting. He then rose to lead the combined group of Detroit area locals shortly after and later advanced to becoming to become head of the Michigan Teamsters group. So he's just working his way on up. Yeah. Meanwhile, Hoffa obtained a deferment from military service in World War II by successfully making a case for his union leadership skills being of more value to the nation by keeping freight running smoothly to assist the war effort. Dang, so he was doing a lot. Yeah, and and he just kept going. Mm -hmm. It was never good enough. He wanted to go on to the next thing and do more. At the 1952 IBT convention in L.A., Hoffa was selected as national vice president by incoming president Dave Beck, the successor to Daniel J. Tobin, who had been president since 1907. Wow. So they got a new president, Dave Beck, and he appointed Hoffa as his vice president. Wow. They had multiple vice presidents, but he was like first vice president. Right, which is special. Yes. Hoffa had quelled an internal revolt against Tobin by securing central states regional support for Beck at the convention. In exchange, Beck made Hoffa a vice president. The IBT moved its headquarters from Indianapolis to Washington, D.C., taking over a large office building in the Capitol in 1955. So to be working out of the Capitol was like they're just taking kind of over the deal. world, aren't they? Yeah. IBT staff was also, meanwhile, enlarged with many lawyers hired to assist with contract negotiations. Following his 1952 election as vice president, Hoffa began spending more of his time away from Detroit, away from his family, Mm -hmm. either in Washington or traveling around the country for his expanded responsibilities. Hoffa became president of the Teamsters in 1957. Wow. So now he's top of it all. Mm-hmm. Beck, who was the previous president, 
had appeared before the Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor or Management Field in March of 1957 and pled the fifth 140 times in response to questions. Jesus. So he's being interrogated. If you don't know, pleading the fifth is basically like you're not saying anything. Yeah, you don't have to answer when you plead the fifth. But also that doesn't mean it don't make you look guilty. Yeah, it makes you look very guilty. It makes you look more guilty than what you would have looked like telling the truth yeah so beck was under indictment when the ibt convention took place and was convicted and imprisoned in a trial for fraud held in seattle Hmm. so he has been convicted of fraud this is beck the previous president right in 1957 okay but all of their everything they do Mm -hmm. basically revolves around organized crime right like so they have to do stuff under the table Mm -hmm. stuff that nobody's gonna know about right that's why they have ties with gangsters and mobsters Mm -hmm. so they're doing a lot of illegal stuff Mm -hmm. to get what they want also to only be imprisoned and in a trial for fraud when he was probably doing like way way more than that yeah it's pretty crazy yeah in the in the movie, the movie doesn't talk too much about um, Jimmy Hoffa. It more revolves around um, somebody we'll talk about later. Frank, mm-hmm. you see, like Frank works for people in the mob who are working for who they are working for the presidents of the Teamsters or you know yeah. people that are high up that they're need just them making to do their jobs. other people to do the dirty work. Yes, right? it's like a whole chain of people. Mm-hmm. But, like, they literally go around and, like, will just kill people. Yeah. To get them out of their way. Like, Especially literally. in D.C. and Detroit. Like, that's what mobsters and gangsters did. Like, They're also, like, really rampant in Detroit and mm-hmm. D.C. and Chicago. Yeah. Like, many of those, like, Especially Midwestern places. Are, yeah. Well, Washington, D.C. is not really Midwest. It's Southern. Right? That's, like, East. East. More East. east way more I'm, east i'm just saying like it's not midwest yeah i was just trying no. to name some other midwest places washington dc is not like i know some geography <laughs> just a little bit not enough <laughs> so uh the 1957 american federation of labor and Con- there's a lot of big names federation. federation of labor and congress of industrial organization which is also called the AFL-CIO. That's what I was trying to see if I could guess it. Why is that so long? I don't know. AFL-CIO. Yeah. That seems like a lot. They Um, shouldn't have shortened their name. I know. They voted nearly five to one to expel the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. So they're trying to get rid of it. No. Yeah. Because they're doing a lot of dirty stuff. They're doing a lot of crime. I was making a joke. Like, it's it's a weird line. They're doing a lot of good things. For the union workers, mm-hmm. but they're doing it illegally. Yeah, basically, but like nobody knows they're doing it illegally, but they're starting to catch on mm-hmm. that it's being done illegally. Right. So Vice President Walter Ruther led the fight to oust the IBT on charges of Hoffa's corrupt leadership, which he was. I mean, everybody loved him. Mm-hmm. Everybody wanted him to be president. There was, like, hardly anybody that was against him. Right. So, like, for them to tell him that he was corrupt, corrupt in a way that 
he's doing things he's not supposed to. Yeah. But, like, nobody knows that. Mm-hmm. His followers don't know that. Right. So they're probably going to stand up for him. Yeah. President George Meany. <laughs> That's funny. Meany. Meany. <laughs> um, which is president of AFL-CIO. The too long name. Yeah. Uh, gave an emotional speech advocating the removal of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and stating that he could only agree to further affiliation of the Teamsters if they dismissed Hoffa as their president, which wow. nobody was going to do. No. Not at this point. No. Me need... Because he's getting what they want. Yeah, I'm he's sorry. All the I things keep, happen. I just keep laughing because his last Meanie. name is Meanie, and he seems... I don't know. I can't say he seems like a meanie because he's just doing (laughs) (laughs) the right thing. Yeah. But, sorry. Meanie demanded a response from Hoffa, and Hoffa just replied, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that's so funny to me right now. (laughs) Meanie. Sorry. We'll see. Okay. We'll Um, see, At the time, the IBT was bringing in over 75, no, (laughs) (laughs) $750,000. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not what that says. $750,000 annually to the, too long of a name, AFL-CIO. Wow. That's a lot of money. That is. Back then, too. Yeah. The 1950s. Yeah. In 1964, he succeeded in bringing virtually all over-the-road truck drivers in North America under a single national master freight agreement, which may have been his biggest achievement in a lifetime of union activity. Wow. Doing it all. Mm-hmm. As if he couldn't do more. Hoffa then tried to bring airline workers and other transport employees into the union with limited access. See, he was trying access. to, like... Access. Bring- success. Success. <laughs> I wondered why that didn't make sense in my head. <laughs> I was like, hold up, no. Success. Um, so he was trying to, like, bring in everybody mm-hmm. to the union, but it was still kind of, like, iffy. Like, yeah. not everybody wanted to work for the union. Right. Even now, people are like, I don't want to work for a union. Dude, working for the union is hard fucking work. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's good money, but you're, like, tearing your body mm-hmm. down. Logan used to work for a union. His dad used to work for a union for, for forever. Like, also, you have to drive long distances mm-hmm. just to get to a job site. Like, who wants to do that? Sorry, not me. I don't care how good the money is. You're not going to convince me that mm-hmm. I can, like, work for like 12 hours a day six days a week and be fine yeah no like absolutely no not. i think the fuck not because how are you gonna work 12 hours a day sleep eight hours at night you got four hours Mm-hmm. four four i'm going to school and working at the same time and this shit sucks mm-hmm. i can't imagine doing this for like the rest of my life people think like way too much about the money and the benefits and they're like the money's good the benefits well, are good yeah but, but when I'm you like, constantly see that check hitting your account like but then it's like all you do with your life is work. Is work. What's the point in making all that money to live in a luxurious home to have all these luxurious cars if you can't even you spend can't time even outside enjoy of work? It. Yeah. Like or that's every not time worth you sit it. down or stand up, your fucking bones are crack a lacking, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my body hurts. I would much rather make enough to get by and have time to myself to spend with my family because you're never gonna get that back yeah you're never gonna get your time back with your family your kids are only young once yeah like they're not gonna be young forever yeah but i understand why some people do it i really do i do but personally not for me not no especially considering i'm literally going to beauty school yeah (laughs) complete opposite yeah so limited success 
not access. <laughs> he was then facing immense personal strain as he was under investigation on trial launching appeals of convictions or imprisoned for virtually all of the 1960s Jeez. so you remember beck he was being interrogated and was convicted for fraud right now they're moving on to hoffa mm-hmm. and seeing what he's doing mm-hmm. under the table that nobody knows about what right. can they get him for hoffa was re-elected without opposition to a third five-year term as president of the IBT, despite having been convicted of jury tampering and mail fraud in court shame, verdicts shame. that were stayed pending review on appeal. So, even though everybody knows he's, you know, doing all these ma- fraud and everything, mm-hmm. he still got reelected because that's how good he is. Yeah. He's doing what the people want. Right. Despite, you know, putting his everything at risk of going to jail. Delegates in Miami Beach also elected Frank Fitzsimmons, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. as first vice president, who would become pre- president if Hoffa has to serve a jail term. So they kind of basically put him on the back burner in right. case things go south with Hoffa. And that's what the movie The Irishman focuses on. Okay. Focuses on Frank. Right. Um... Hoffa had first faced major criminal investigations in 1957. On March 14, 1957, Hoffa was arrested for allegedly trying to bribe an aide to the select committee. Hoffa denied the charges, but the arrest triggered additional investigations and more arrests and indictments over the following weeks. So one thing turned into another, turned into another, and it just kept going. Okay. In May 1963, Hoffa was indicted for jury tampering in Tennessee, charged with attempted bribery of a grand juror, I hate that word, (laughs) during his 1962 conspiracy trial in Nashville. Say juror. 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 (laughs) Hate it. Juror. 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 Um, Hoffa was convicted on March 4th, 1964, and sentenced to eight years in prison and a ten thousand dollar fine while on bail during his appeal hoffa was convicted in a second trial held in chicago on july 26 1964 on one count of conspiracy and three counts of mail and wire fraud for improper use of the teamsters pension fund and sentenced to five years in prison so he's racking it up he's taking everybody's money Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing. He's taking everybody's money. And then he's getting caught. Yeah. Um, he began serving his... Nope. Mm-hmm. Hoffa spent the next three years unsuccessfully appealing his 1964 convention. <laughs> you can't talk Convictions. Today. Conventions. Conventions. He had conventions. <laughs> and then he began serving his prison sentence for 13 years altogether. Damn. On March 7th, 1967. It still doesn't seem like a lot of time, though. 13 years. For what he was doing. Yeah. I mean, he was fraud. I mean, he was literally taking the union workers' money and using it, and then it was gone. Right. And they were like, where's my money? Where's my pension? Where's my pension? Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, When Hoffa went to prison, he planned to run the union from prison through... Frank Fitzsimmons, Mm -hmm. who was named acting president of the union. Okay. So, while Hoffa was in prison, 
technically he was still president, but Frank stepped in to basically do all the work for him as acting president at the time. Right. Frank was a loyalist to Hoffa, who owed owed high position in large part to Hoffa's influence. Despite this, Frank soon distanced himself from Hoffa's influence and control after 1967. Oh, so he said, I'm going to do this on my own. Yeah, he realized what was going on. He realized all the stuff that Mm -hmm. Hoffa was doing and was like, maybe that's not a good idea. So he was actually a decent person. He just didn't know what was happening. Yeah. Frank also decentralized power somewhat within the IBT's administration structure, foregoing much of the control Hoffa took advantage of as union president. While still in prison, Hoffa resigned as Teamsters president on June 19, 1971, and Frank was elected official president on July 9, 1971. Okay. On December 23, 1971, less than five years into his 13-year sentence, Hoffa was released from prison when United States President Richard Nixon commuted it to time served. He Nixon thought, would. <laughs> <laughs> he thought he's done his time. He learned his lesson. He's not president anymore. Let him out of prison, basically. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, Richard Nixon would. Um, I don't know about uh, all that. Like, why? <laughs> that doesn't make any I don't sense. Get like, it. Why aren't you releasing people? Like, oh, I don't. We, e- I don't even want to go into this. Never mind. That I'm, has been brought I'm about up to go on a rant. Bro. We've we've talked about a case. I can't remember what case it was, where um, somebody served like a minimum. Who was it? Oh, I can't remember. I can't either. You know how you knew who I'm talking about. They were released from mm-hmm. prison from they had a life sentence yeah. or something and but they, they did like a minimum re- amount and they were yeah. released. Honestly, I just don't know how much I like Richard Nixon as a president considering he started the war on drugs. In reality, it was the war on black people. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, mean, I've there's been a lot of research coming back on it and like the war on drugs was not really good for the black community mm-hmm. and it really hurt them in ways that we can never understand but also i don't know I wasn't he alive. was trying to well there's a lot of research on it you'll just have to look it up I'll just look i'm not gonna go into it. this rant never okay. mind i'm backing out we okay. got a lot more research to get through so <laughs> you that's that's bottom line how i feel so as a result of hoffa's previous resignation he was awarded one point a one point seven five million dollar lump sum termination benefit by the Teamsters Retirement and Family Protection Plan. That's a lot of money. Yep. That type of pension settlement had never occurred within the Teamsters. So, they were kind of confused. That's a lot of money. Why he was getting that much money. Mm-hmm. Hoffa regained his freedom, but the commutation from Nixon did not allow Hoffa to, quote, engage in direct or indirect management of any labor organization end quote, until March 6, 1980. Like, that's going to stop the man. Yeah. It, okay, until literally, 1980. Literally won't. <laughs> like, he is not allowed until 1980. Like, and then it's fine. What's that supposed to do? <laughs> like, how about the rest of his life? Yeah. <laughs> like, but you have to think at that time, he'd be almost 70 years old. So? That doesn't matter. <laughs> like, he doesn't give a fuck. Sorry. Hoffa okay. contended that he had never agreed to that condition. 
Hoffa's plan to regain the leadership of the union were met with opposition from several members of the mafia. Oh, so the mafia didn't even want him back. No. One no. of them <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> one of them was Anthony or Tony Provenzano, who had been a Teamsters local leader in New Jersey and a national vice president of the union during Hoffa's second term as its president. Provenzano sounds like a cheese. It does. (laughs) Provenzano had once been a friend of Hoffa's, but became an enemy after a reported feud when both were in federal prison at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania in the 1960s. So they was in prison together. Mm. In 1973 and 1974, Hoffa asked him for his support to regain his former position, but Provenzano refused and threatened Hoffa by reportedly saying he would pull out his guts and kidnap his grandchildren. What a threat. He was part of the mafia. For a man that sounds like cheese. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But he's important. Provenzano's important. Okay. Okay. At least two of Provenzano's union opponents had been murdered. And others who had spoken out against him had been assaulted. So they weren't empty threats. They were not. Uh, he was a mafia member. Yeah. So, I mean, he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty or right. hire somebody else to do his dirty work for him. Right. Other mafia figures who became involved were Anthony Giacalone. I think is how you say him. Say his name. Mm-hmm. And allegedly Kingpin in the Detroit Mafia and his younger brother, Vito. Okay. Okay. But the only one we want to remember is Giacalone. Okay. Provenzano. The FBI believes that they were positioning themselves as mediators between Hoffa and Provenzano. The brothers had made three visits to Hoffa's home at Lake Orion and one to the Guardian Building law offices. Brothers were talking about Kingpin and his younger brother, Beto. Okay. Their avowed purpose in meeting Hoffa was to set up a peace meeting between Provenzano and Hoffa. So they're supposed to meet so they could put this all to rest. Right. No okay. killing each other. No killing each No killing each other. Oh. <laughs> the way you said that and looked at me says it otherwise. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Hoffa's son James said quote dad was pushing so hard to get back in office I was increasingly afraid that the mob would do something about it. Okay. James was convinced that the peace meeting was a pretext to Giacalone's setting dad up for a hit since for a hit since Hoffa had been increasingly uneasy each time the Giacalone brothers arrived. Interesting. Yes. So really they don't want him back in office, but they're trying to like settle their stuff and be like you need to put it to rest. Mm-hmm. Supposedly. Supposedly. Is what their meeting is about. Allegedly. Allegedly. Okay. I don't want the mafia coming after me. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they still exist today because the top five um, biggest mob names in Chicago still exist today and still yeah. run the mob in mm-hmm. Chicago today. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, don't Their come after me. Deep. I'm just saying. So, now we're going to talk about the events of July 30th, 1975. <gasps> July 30th. Yes. So, so I know something's going to happen because of events. Well, we'll see. Oh, okay. So, Hoffa mm-hmm. 
disappeared on July 30th, 1975, after he had gone out to the meeting with Provenzano and Gia Colon. He's done. Okay. He's gone. Went He's to dead. the meeting. But it was he never a setup. came back. It was a setup. We'll see. The meeting was due to take place at 2 p.m. Okay. At the Marcus Red Fox restaurant in Bloomfield Township, a Detroit suburb. Okay. The place was known to Hoffa as it had been the site of the wedding reception for his son James. Oh, okay. So he, so he was kind he was of familiar. Going. Yeah. Hoffa wrote Geoclone's initials and the time and location of the meeting in his office calendar. It said TG, 2 p.m., Red Fox. Got it. So it was on his calendar. Mm-hmm. Everybody he knew where he was going. Hoffa left his home at 2, uh, sorry, 1.15 p.m. Okay. Before heading to the restaurant, he stopped at the office of his close friend, Louis Linto, a former president of the Teamsters Local 614, who now ran a limousine service. Mm. Linto and Hoffa had been enemies early in their careers, but eventually became friends. When Hoffa left prison, Linto had also become Hoffa's unofficial appointment secretary and arranged a dinner meeting between Hoffa and, Giacolone, and the Giacolone brothers on July 26th, in which they had informed him of the July 30th me- meeting. Okay. Okay. Linto was out to lunch when Hoffa stopped by, and so Hoffa talked to some of the staff present and left a message for Linto before he left to go to the Red Fox. Between 2.15 and 2.30 p.m., an annoyed Hoffa called his wife from a payphone on a post in front of Damon Hardware, directly behind the Marcus Red Fox, and complained that Gia Cologne had not shown up and that he had been stood up. So they weren't there. Right. Supposedly. His wife told him she had not heard from anyone. He told her he would be home at 4 p.m. to grill steaks for dinner. Several witnesses saw Hoffa standing by his car and pacing the restaurant's parking lot, mm-hmm. like waiting for them to show up. Two men saw Hoffa, recognized him, and stopped to talk with him and shake his hand. Hoffa also made a call to Linto, in which he again complained that the men were late. Linto gave him the time as 3.30 p.m., but the FBI suspected that it was earlier, based on the timing of other phone calls from Linto's office from around that time. Okay. So, Linto was saying that he talked to Hoffa at 3.30 p.m., but the FBI think that it was earlier than that. Gotcha. The FBI estimates that Hoffa left the location without struggle around 2.45 to 2.50 p.m. One witness reported seeing Hoffa in the back of a maroon Lincoln or Mercury with three other people. At 7 a.m. the next day, Hoffa's wife called her son and daughter to say that their father had not come home. On her way home, Hoffa's daughter claimed to have had a vision of her father, who she was already sure was dead. Weird. Yeah. He was slumped over and wore a dark-colored, short-sleeved polo shirt. It had mystified her ever since, that although she could not have possibly known that prior to her arrival at Lake Orion, the clothing in her vision was exactly what Hoffa was wearing when he disappeared. 
Interesting. So maybe her dad was trying to reach out psychically. Mm-hmm, maybe. At 7.20 a.m., Linto went to the Maka's Red Fox and found Hoffa's unlocked car in the parking lot. But there was no sign of Hoffa or any indication of what had happened to him. He called the police, who later arrived at the scene. The Michigan State Police were brought in, and the FBI was alerted. At 6 p.m., Hoffa's son, James, filed a missing persons report. The Hoffa family offered a $200,000 reward for any information about the disappearance. That's a lot of money. The primary piece of physical evidence obtained at the investigation was a maroon 1975 Mercury Marquis Broman, which belonged to Anthony Giacalone's son, Joseph. Uh Uh-oh. And remember, somebody said they thought they saw him in a Mercury. Mm Mm-hmm. The car had been borrowed earlier that day by Charles Chucky O'Brien to deliver fish. Mm, weird. Okay. O'Brien was Hoffa's foster son, although relations between them had soured in the years preceding Hoffa's disappearance. Investigators said Hoffa's family suspected that O'Brien had a role in Hoffa's disappearance. On August 21st, police dogs identified Hoffa's scent in the car. Hmm? Gia Cologne and Provenzano, who denied having scheduled a meeting with Hoffa, were found not to have been near the restaurant that afternoon. I wonder why. Provenzano told investigators that he was playing cards with Stephen Andretta, Thomas Andretta's brother, in Union City, New Jersey, the day that Hoffa disappeared. Despite extensive surveillance and bugging, investigators found that the mafia members whom they thought were involved were generally generally unwilling to talk about Hoffa's disappearance even in private oh really but it's the mafia i mean Mm -hmm. there are they really going to talk about even if even if they don't know they're not going to say i don't know even if they know they're not going to say they're just gonna be quiet be quiet yeah because if you run your mouth and somebody gets in trouble for it you're done then you're done for you're done on December 4th, 1975, a federal investigator in Detroit said in court, presided by James Paul Churchill, that a witness had identified three New Jersey men as having participated in the abduction and murder of James R. Hoffa. The three men were close associates of Provenzano. Of course. Thomas Andretta, Salvatore Bergoglio, and his brother Gabriel Bergoglio. Later in 1975, Michigan Attorney General Frank J. Kelly went to Waterford Township to supervise an unsuccessful digging expedition for Hoffa. After years of investigation involving numerous law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, officials have not reached a definitive conclusion as to Hoffa's fate and who was involved. Hoffa's wife, Josephine, died on September 12, 1980, and is interred at White Chapel Memorial Cemetery in Troy, Michigan. So she never found out what happened to her husband. That's sad. That's, that bugs me. On December 9, 1982, Hoffa was declared legally dead as of July 30, 1982, by Oakland County, Michigan, probate judge, why is that so hard to say? Judge <laughs> Norman R. Bernard. In 1989... Kenneth Walton, the agent in charge of the FBI's Detroit office, 
told the Detroit News that he knew what happened to Hoffa. Oh, did he? Quote, I'm comfortable I know who did it, but it's never going to be prosecuted because we would have to divulge informants, confidential sources. Talking Mm. about mafia. Yeah. In 2001, the FBI matched DNA from Hoffa's hair taken from a brush with a strand of hair found in Joseph Giacalone's car, but it is possible that Hoffa had traveled in the car on a different day. On June 16, 2006, the Detroit Free Press published the entire Hoffa's memo, a 56-page report prepared by the FBI for a January 1976 briefing on the case at the FBI headquarters in Washington. Although not claiming conclusively to establish the specifics of his disappearance, the memo records a belief that Hoffa was murdered at the behest of organized crime figures who regarded his efforts to regain power in the Teamsters as a threat to their control of the union's pension fund. As of 2021, digs are still periodically conducted in the Detroit area in search of Hoffa's body, but a common theory among experts is that his body was cremated. I mean, yeah, they wouldn't want any evidence they're an organized crime. Yeah. And honestly, like... Another reason I don't want to be in the union. How do you know where your money's going? Yeah. You don't know. So now we're going to talk about a couple theories. Okay. There is a lot of theories. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is just a handful of them. Um, so one is that Hoffa was killed on the orders of alleged New Jersey mob figure Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano. Okay. Which is what was suggested right. in the research. His body was ground up in little pieces, shipped to Florida, and thrown into a swamp. I mean, yeah. Um, another theory, probably the most infamous, this one's interesting, had um, Hoffa buried under Section 107 of the Giants Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one was that Hoffa was abducted by either federal marshals or federal agents, driven to a nearby airport, and dropped out of a plane Possibly into one of the Great Lakes that surround Michigan. Okay, that just sounds like way out there. I thought it was about to say gave him like a new identity and a new life. Yeah. I was about to say, okay, yeah, that's... But dro- dropped, <laughs> dropped out, of, out a of a plane and into the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Um, This is the one that seems more, most logical to me, even mm-hmm. after the um one with Provenzano. Hoffa was killed by one-time ally Frank Sheeran. At a Detroit house, key parts of the narrative became the basis for the 2019 movie, The Irishman. Okay. And in the movie, it talks, it goes through the whole thing. He, their whole thing was they paint houses. Mm-hmm. And painting houses means they kill people. Yeah. And so, he was going to a house to paint, paint the house, and he was shot. Mm. And it, it goes through it in the movie. You just have to watch the movie to see, but Frank... Sheeran in the movie mm-hmm. that's based on a true event said that like this is what happened right um another theory was that new jersey mob hitman richard the Iceman kuklinski killed hoffa in michigan drove the body to a new jersey junkyard sealed it in a 50 gallon drub and set it on fire later dug up the body and put it in the trunk of a car that was sold as scrap metal okay um, Hoffa's killers buried him beneath the 73-story Renaissance Center in downtown Detroit. That would be interesting. 
He was buried in a makeshift grave beneath a concrete slab of a barn in Oakland Township, about 25 miles north of Detroit. Okay, but wouldn't that one be easy to figure out? Just dig it up. In a concrete in a concrete slab of a barn? Just dig up the concrete slab. Mm-hmm. Use a jackhammer. That's true. If you start hitting something that ain't concrete, well, there's your answer. Yeah. Uh, the last one I have, there's a whole lot more. But the last one I have written down was Hoffa's body was delivered to a New Jersey City landfill in 1975, placed in a steel drum, and buried about 100 yards away on state property that sits below an elevated highway. That one would also be easy to figure out. Yeah, just go to the Especially since it's a steel drum. Yeah. It's still there. But you guys will have to watch The Irishman and let you know, let me know what you think um it's a really good movie and it goes in way more it the movie doesn't really talk a whole lot about hoffa mm-hmm. it, it talks about frank um yeah but his involvement with hoffa and the end talks about his disappearance okay and it's narr- narrated by frank and it's based on true events interesting so it's a really good movie um but I hope you guys thought that was as interesting as I did. Yeah, it was pretty um, interesting. I know it's not really like a true crime case. I mean, it but kind like of is, kind so. of yeah. It's not confirmed that it's like he's been murdered. Maybe well, just he ran he away. Wasn't murdered I don't doesn't know. mean it's not true crime. They're yeah. still doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Yeah. But that was the story of Jimmy James Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Um if you guys have any case suggestions, you can DM us on any social media. Or, or email, email us. us at tcstpod. Is that what it is? Yep. tcstpod at gmail.com. Sorry, I was rubbing my eye. I was like, it zoned out. Um, rubbing my eye felt so good. <laughs> okay. Follow us on all of our socials. Yeah. Link will be in the show notes. Link tree. Go watch The Irishman and... Never seen it. Tell us... Well, you need to watch it. Tell me <laughs> what you think because I really enjoyed it. Yeah, give me reviews. Tell yeah. me if I need to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> um anything else no all right we will Uh, see you in the next one talk to you later bye Bye.